This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino. Great to have you along for this edition of Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Leanne Castellino. Each week, we talk about topics of interest to parents of teens, youth, and young adults with our guests. Later in today's show, we guarantee that the title of this new book will get your attention. That's coming up. First, adapting to change and managing transitions is increasingly a key skill in today's uber-paced world. Fall is typically an annual period of change or new beginnings, especially for children. In many families, fall 2021 is shaping up to be a unique period of major transition as a result of the pandemic. A return to in-person learning, re-entering a school environment after more than a year away in some cases, reintegrating socially after months of virtual or limited human interaction. There will be kids going off to university, some who may be returning home, others who will have had to pause or rethink their future plans because of COVID-19 or other changes in their lives. To discuss transitions, we're joined by a father of two teenage boys, a psychologist, educator, entrepreneur, and author. Dr. Christopher Thurber is also an award-winning writer and leading expert in the area of positive youth development. He joins us from his home in New Hampshire. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to start by asking you, what would you describe as some general principles that you can share around successfully navigating major life transitions? especially in light of this extraordinary period of uncertainty that we're living through and just the general impact of the wholesale changes that have governed our lives through this pandemic now, you know, over 16 months into it. First, I would say transitions of any nature are easiest when we follow the adage of distinguish between what you can control and what you can't control and focus primarily on what you can human beings like to have a sense of agency that's true of newborn infants it's true of elderly people and everything in between we like to feel that we have some control over our circumstances and as you pointed out in your introduction we have experienced 16 to 18 months of lacking control in a lot of domains where we're used to exercising control so i think that transitions are exciting transitions are fun and interesting. They can also spur some anxiety. And if parents can themselves and also coach their kids to distinguish between what can you influence, what can you control, and what's really out of your control, let's go back to focusing on what you can control. And then my second piece of broad guidance would be to really focus on the positive and not in a Pollyannish let's view the world through rose-colored glasses, no matter what happens, we're gonna call it good sort of way. That's something most kids can see through instantly. But instead, to really say, you know, this is or has been or will be a mix of things that are challenging and a mix of things that are really pleasant. And some of those challenges will turn into things that are pleasant, but to focus on the opportunity that the transition presents and what you anticipate is going to be positive about it. Those are such important points. And really, when you think about it, 
you know, the idea of not having control is something that people can just fixate on. And then it just governs everything else that they think about in their approach, you know, into, into sometimes irrational behavior if we're going down the line. (laughs) But, but let me ask you in what specific ways would you suggest that parents can best support their child with these changes and transitions? One of the best things that parents can do is talk about the world, including transitions, in a way that emphasizes the opportunities rather than the scarcity of resources. For example, let's let's use a concrete example. Um, this fall, there are going to be a lot of students who are finishing secondary school in Canada, in the United States and elsewhere who will be preparing their applications to university. And if parents frame that pending transition as, you know, you really got to get into this school or that school, you know, if you don't get into Waterloo, if you don't get into Princeton, um, you know, this will not have been worth it. That's a very narrow set of options when you're thinking about the transition from secondary school to university, if that's what you have your sights set on. By contrast, if parents present things broadly, well, you know, there are a lot of wonderful schools and it really depends on what it is that you want to do. And far more important than where you go is what you do when you're there and putting forth your best effort and being creative and being supportive of other students and getting involved. Those are things that you've been really good at doing in high school. And the transition to this higher education opportunity will be much easier if you can lean on what you already know are some of your strengths, like your creativity, your sense of humor, your perseverance and effort. So that's a specific example of the ways in which parents can present those transitions and also um, not just framing things broadly rather than narrowly, but also never to frame things as a do or die kind of high stakes uh, circumstance. In other words, there will be times for all of us in life when we have a high stakes situation like the championship game or the, you know, the closing performance of a play, or maybe it's the one concert or solo recital that a student is going to give that year. And there's no stepping away from the fact that it's high stakes. But I think that parents can avoid framing it as a do or die type situation by saying, you know, this is such a wonderful opportunity to do this, not the only opportunity to perform, not the only opportunity to play football or soccer, but um, this is something you've worked really hard to get to this point. And I have every expectation that you'll try your best. And that's all anyone can ask. So students should be working toward doing, becoming their best selves, not becoming the best. And again, that's another way of framing transitions that is optimistic and motivating rather than frightening and anxiety provoking. 
Our guest is Dr. Chris Thurber, psychologist, educator, author, and dad. And we're talking about setting your kids up for success when it comes to major transitions in their lives. I'm Leanne Castellino, and you're listening to Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. Dr. Thurber, you know, something that we've heard a lot uh, in terms of discussion, certainly in the last several months, has been social skills and dormant social skills as a result of this pandemic and as it relates to to children. When it comes to, you know, teens and young adolescents and young adults, this is a huge area of concern. What, as a psychologist, would you suggest to parents about how to optimally manage their child's reintegration, as it were, into society? All kids' social skills are a bit lagging at this point, you know, whether they're entering middle school or high school, secondary school or beyond. Because of the pandemic restrictions, young people have not had the same opportunities to share, problem solve, discuss, debate, and live in close proximity to one another. So although we may have had a lot of opportunities to work with our nuclear families, I think patience is the order of the day. In in order for us to be compassionate with other people who may be abrupt or run out of ideas with regard to solving certain social problems, whether those are you know, academic or relational, you're having a conflict with your roommate or your former best friend or your lab partner or a teammate, the patience and the the grace that we offer to other people, my hope is that that will be reciprocated. And if we're all in sort of tolerant, compassionate mode, the 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 rustiness of our social skills will, I think, soon disappear. The other piece of advice I would offer is with the loosening of some restrictions for people who are vaccinated as parents we should be doing whatever we can given your location and what the current health recommendations are to orchestrate arrange schedule some social interactions for your child with other children with peers we we really need to get as much practice with our social skills prior to the start of the school year as possible. What concerns you most as you look at the topic of transitions, especially at this time? I worry that as we're about to make some additional transitions, which as I said earlier, have stressful as well as joyful and exciting components to them, that students or young people in general will continue or maybe even increase their use of recreational substances as a coping strategy, as something that they just got used to during the pandemic. And so I really encourage parents to have additional frank discussions with their kids about substance use and not just, please don't use this, but when you are feeling stressed or when you want to have some fun, here are some great ideas. And what are the, what are your ideas for healthy ways of coping with stress and for fun, less risky ways to be entertained. 
It's interesting. Obviously, you know, the topic of transitions is not new, but in many ways, we are all living experiments where this topic is concerned at the time we find ourselves in right now. What would you say are some, you know, principles across the board that whether we're in a pandemic or not, you would suggest are really foundational in terms of how parents can help manage transitions that their kids are going through? Oh, it's a great question as well. I think first I would cite what I believe are the foundations of wellness in general or of health and wellness. So exercise, nutrition, sleep, and social connection. And that set of four factors for every person always needs a bit of a tune-up healthy sleep hygiene. And as you know, Leanne, adolescents need more sleep than either children or adults. So uh, we need to be attentive to that as parents. I think the other piece of, you know, transcendent advice that I would give is when, you know, when we're thinking about transitions, I want us always to be thinking about them as opportunities, looking at what's different and having a positive mindset about it is essential. So uh, different teachers, for example, or different food at the school cafeteria or a different coach, ask yourself, this is different. I've noticed this. What might this present as an opportunity? And not just be the passive recipient of a transition, but be instrumental in creating what that transition means to you. And even the youngest kids who are undergoing transitions can be instrumental in shaping that transition. Tons of great advice. We'll have much more with Dr. Chris Thurber, including a video interview on our digital platform at whereparentstalk.com. Dr. Thurber, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Leanne. Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Where Parents Talk. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Here's Leanne Castellino. Welcome back. So what exactly does it take to raise a child who's not stupid, annoying, or detestable? Our next guest sought to answer that exact question. She is a mother of two and an award-winning journalist who covers science, medicine, and parenting topics. She is a contributing writer at Scientific American Magazine, and you can read her work in the New York Times and the Washington Post, where she is a regular contributing writer. In July of 2021, Melinda Wenner Moyer wrote her first book. It's called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Scientific-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Tots to Teens. Melinda Wenner Moyer joins us from New York. Thank you so much for being with us here on Where Parents Talk. Thank you so much for having me. So Melinda, as a fellow journalist and passionate wordsmith, I was certainly intrigued by the title of this book, as I'm sure many uh, people will be and are. But it's also interesting to me because it's a question that I personally spend a lot of time thinking about with all the examples of 
you know, really questionable, you know, stupid, annoying, detestable behavior, which incidentally are the words that the Merriam-Webster uh, Dictionary uses to describe the word uh, That's where I got that from. How do we generally go about shielding our kids from these negative examples and hope they don't follow a similar path? I think it's really hard to shield our kids from these examples because even even when we don't have the TV or radio on um, in our home, our kids could be exposed at friends' houses and and the like. Um, so I the way I think about it is less about shielding our kids from these bad examples, but instead talking with them about these examples and and contextualizing them and you know explaining if we see something unsavory, we see someone doing something we don't like, actually engaging with our kids about that and saying, you know, I I was put off by what that person just said and and here's why. And you know, do you think that was hurtful? Just having more conversations in a way about what is out there because I, I think if we try to shield our kids from it and we don't talk about it, then they might nevertheless get exposed to it and, and just really not know how to understand it and not know what to do about it. So, um, so yeah, I think engaging with, with kids might be the best way forward. It's a very important point. And, you know, part of it is that the natural inclination of, of any parent is to shield and protect first, right? But I, I, I hear you on what you're saying. Let me ask you, what would you say that you learned in that regard? Three things uh, in the course of the research you did for this book that surprised you most? Well, there, there were so many things that surprised me when I dug into the research. Um, but yes, I'll pull out a, a few things. One um, one has to do with bullying. I have a chapter on on bullying and understanding why kids bully and and what parents can do to um, reduce the chance that their kids were bully will bully. And one thing that was really surprising to me was that there are actually um, a decent number of kids who engage in bullying behaviors who don't actually realize that what they're doing is hurtful. I think we all have this idea in our heads of bullies as being, you know, these these terrible kids who are trying to make other people's lives miserable. They know exactly what they're doing, you know, um, and those those kinds of bullies do exist. Um, but there are a lot of sort of middle ground kids who may not understand how what they're doing affects other people and, and just really have a hard time putting themselves in other people's shoes. And so it's it, because of this, it can be really helpful for parents to talk about bullying and what it looks like and talk about how even things like harm, seemingly harmless teasing can be really hurtful. So that was, that was one interesting tidbit. Um, Another, uh, I'm going to kind of jump around. Um, I looked into the research on self-esteem and how to how to foster healthy self-esteem. And one thing I learned is it's actually really helpful not to protect your kids from failure, to kind of let them experience challenges and, and failures. Um, I think we as parents often really want to protect our kids, as, as you were saying earlier. But in fact, in order to develop healthy self-esteem, kids have to experience hardships and kind of get through them and realize that they can survive in the face of challenges. And, and you know, they're, they're still able to, um, you know, their, their parents still love them, even if they mess up, essentially. So that's a second one. Um, and then a third one, I think that was really surprising was what is the most constructive way to help kids who are fighting like two siblings, if or three siblings or four siblings, if they're fighting. Mm -hmm. And that is um, to be more of a mediator when kids fight, like instead of 
being a referee and saying, okay, you know, you need to give the teddy bear to your sister and deciding how an, an argument's going to end to instead help your kids sort of air their grievances and talk about how they're feeling and why they're upset and then help them brainstorm a kind of cooperative solution that that is, there's really a lot of research on this um, that shows that when parents can do this with siblings, you know, at least some of the time when they're fighting, it really helps kids develop better problem solving skills. If you listen closely, you can hear all those parents out there who've been refereeing for many years say, oh, no, I've been doing it all wrong. But, you know, again, it's that natural instinct. So it's really interesting to hear you say that that the science says, you know, here's a different approach that you should consider for sure. Yeah. And, and, but it is hard. And I certainly still referee sometimes. I mean, we can't, we can't do everything all the time. Your kids are, are seven and 10 years old, so they're, they're still young. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, how did the research and, and everything you learned in the course of writing this book over the year that it took you to put it together, how has that impacted your own parenting style and approach? I would say now that I, I take... I take a minute whenever my kids do something that I find challenging or I don't understand, or it's driving me nuts. I try to take a minute before I respond and put myself in their shoes. Because I think a lot of times with kids, you know, they have, they have a reaction to something we don't, we don't understand. Like it seems like they're overreacting or they're really upset about something that seems like not a big deal. And And I think sometimes it can really help to, instead of reacting emotionally and quickly to our kids to just take that minute, take a deep breath and think, okay, well, maybe what are they really experiencing and how might it be different than what I'm assuming they're experiencing? And then thinking about then the the best way to respond that can be constructive and like to, you know, help them and provide guidance rather than to, you know, just get angry. Um, I think that would, that would be the biggest the biggest change that I've seen in myself is just taking that extra moment <laughs> before yeah. I respond. Well, and it's such an important point, right? Because when they get into those teen years, you, you often don't know what's coming at you and the, the developmental piece and everything else down that road uh, can often be hard to predict. Melinda, can you tell us what was the tipping point for you to decide to write this book? Well, this was now three years ago or so, and I was getting increasingly frustrated by all the bad behavior that I was seeing around me, which you referenced earlier, um, from politicians in power here in the US. Um, there were also, if you recall, all the Me Too allegations that were coming to light. Mm-hmm. And I found observing all this bad behavior around me, I just started thinking more and more about my kids and who they were going to become. And I I realized that more than anything else, what I wanted was for my kids to grow up to be good human beings. And that just felt really, really pressing. Um, and, and I also realized there wasn't a lot of um, writing that had dug into the research on building character and values in kids. There wasn't a lot for parents on this topic. And so it eventually kind of just dawned on me, like, maybe this is, this is my book. I can dig into the science as a science journalist. There was actually a lot of research on this and then translate it for a, an audience of parents. And, and maybe in this way, help all of us raise a, you know, a generation of good kids. You are listening to Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino in conversation with Melinda Wenner-Moyer, mother, journalist, and author of the book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, Science-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Tots to Teens. 
Now, one of the themes in your book that you cover off when you talk about values and and all the things that you just listed is racism. I wonder if you could take us through what you learned from the science about how to raise kids who are not racist. So I think a lot of parents, especially white parents, they it's very well-intentioned, but they think maybe if I don't talk about race, my kids won't see race. They won't see skin color. They won't make a big deal out of it and they won't become racist. And unfortunately, that is not what the research suggests. Um, kids, even from a young age, they do see skin color. They they notice it. And they're also noticing the racial hierarchy that exists in our society. So they can easily see that when you look around at people in positions of power and high status in our society, they are more often white people. And they can see it just in their neighborhoods sometimes, you know, the kids that they go to school with who have the most money, the biggest houses, they might be more likely to be white. And when kids see this hierarchy, Um, and they aren't given the context and they aren't told, well, you know, racism explains so much of this hierarchy, then they will often come to prejudice conclusions. I mean, the simplest conclusion, if you see this hierarchy all around you as a kid and nobody tells you otherwise, the simplest conclusion really is maybe white people are just better or smarter. And so this is unfortunately what the research suggests happens. And that's why it's really actually very important for parents, um, even starting from a young age, but of course, all the way through the teenage years to be talking to kids about skin color, normalizing it, you know, explaining why people have different shades of skin and, you know, and, and also that that racism still exists and it's systemic in our society. And, um, and it explains a lot of the hierarchies that children see. In addition to racism, you also talk about generosity or that philanthropic spirit and how to nurture that in children. Could you give us some of the um, highlights of what you discovered there? One big take home in terms of what parents can do to foster generosity is to let kids have the feelings that they have to acknowledge them, to validate them. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, we, we, we inadvertently shame our our kids for having the feelings that they have for being, you know, especially with teenagers, teenagers have a lot of hormones too, and they have a lot of big feelings and strong feelings. And we don't always give those, give our kids kind of a safe space to, to feel the feelings that they're feeling and tell them, you know, it's okay that you feel this way. And the research is very clear. It finds a link between, you know, allowing kids to have feelings, talking about feelings, and then the development of generous behavior. And, it might seem counterintuitive, but what the research suggests is that, you know, the more we talk about feelings, the better able our kids are to recognize other people's feelings and to put themselves in other people's shoes and to develop a skill called theory of mind, which is essentially this perspective taking ability. And that the, the better our kids' theory of mind skills are, the more kind and compassionate and generous and helpful they become. So that's a really, that's a really big one. It makes sense when you simplify it and explain it like that. And and empathy certainly is part and parcel of what you've just described. Uh, Melinda, can you tell us um, what do you want parents to take away from this book? Well, I think that there's a hopeful message here in the sense that parents really do make a difference in terms of shaping their children's character and who they become. And yes, there are so many bad examples in this world and, and, and things that kids can learn from that are negative, but we as parents really can make a difference and push against those. And, um, I mean, 
the research really shows that, that the types of responses that we have to our kids and the ways that we engage with them, the kinds of conversations we have, they really actually make um, a strong impact in, in who our kids ultimately become. And I think that's, yeah, that's a powerful and important message for us now when we, we as parents might be worried about the state of the world and, and where it's going. Certainly lots of hot topics to unpack in, in that book. The book is called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Science-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Tots to Teens. Melinda Wenner-Moyer, mom, award-winning journalist and first-time author, thank you so much for your time and insight today. Thank you, Leanne. And that is our time for this edition of Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. More about today's guests and our weekly giveaway can be found on whereparentstalk.com. I'm Leanne Castellino. See you next time. Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. 